0: Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio Podcast, the podcast where comics and politics meet. I'm your host, Elon Levin. This is the show for the sorts of fans who understand why it matters that Batman's super genius arch-nemesis Bane is Latino, and have moved on to debate whether his place of origin is supposed to be fake Cuba or fake El Salvador, and have thoughts about why each of these options tells a different tale of colonialism. Speaking of Batman... Joining me on today's show is a comics writer and critic, Cheryl Lynn Eaton, who's making her debut as a Batman writer in this month's issue of Batman Secret Files. A New York metropolitan native, now safely nestled in the outskirts of Atlanta, Cheryl Lynn Eaton has contributed to pop culture sites such as, as a columnist and reporter, held court as a founder of the Orms Society. Maintained a position as an editor for an academic press, written for comic publishers such as Image and DC, and served as an editorial intern for Publishers Weekly. Uh, Real quick, I just want to remind folks that early voting has begun in many states, and if you are living in a state that has early voting, you should go and do that right now. Uh, I also know that you know all of our listeners who are citizens and able to vote are going to be doing that but we're also counting on you all to talk to all of your friends and relatives because you don't assume that because you're prepared and thinking about these things that they're prepared and thinking about these things uh, and make sure that folks aren't just voting for Congress but they're voting for your local offices as well and vote.org is a good resource to learn more information and with that in mind, hello, Cheryl. Hello.
1: And I am proud to say that I have already voted. Thank goodness for early voting. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, that's right, you're in Georgia. Yes, and I was very excited to go in and vote, very, very excited to get my little peach sticker. So yeah, I went in uh, earlier this week, last week, and uh, popped in, and it just took a, a few minutes. I was so happy.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks for the testimonial. There you go, folks. There you have it. <laughs> um, you know, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time because you're really one of my favorite critics. And it's always trying to figure out, like, what is the right moment to have another critic on the show to talk shop? And then when I found out you have a comic coming out right this fall, I said, this is the perfect excuse to to make it happen. Um, yes. But it's always interesting to me to see fellow critics getting into the writing end of things. It's um, it's odd.
1: Uh I'm kind of I'm happy that I'm getting into uh, the more creative side. I always felt like I was a critic because there were things in the industry that really upset me and for a long time I hadn't seen it change but now that I'm seeing those changes being made I feel like I can sort of separate myself and hop on over to the uh, to the other side although I, I obviously do not stop uh, talking or analyzing these stories, as you can tell on Twitter or any kind of social media, I am still obsessed with uh, breaking it down uh, according to culture and politics and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. Um, What was the first comic script that you wrote? Um, Was it for the... Was it for... um,
1: the first concept. comic strip yeah. that I uh, that I wrote that I was actually uh, paid for was uh, for uh, Kelly Sue and Val Delandro for Bitch Planet Triple Feature.
0: Yeah, uh, that's
1: right. But before that, I was uh, basically doing many many years ago as as a uh, young kid uh, writing all full on Wildcat scripts uh, for uh, the like early edition of Wildcat. So I've been writing for a long time. But my first uh, professional work uh, as a comic writer was for uh, Image Comics for uh, Bitch Planet Triple Feature, which I was so excited and happy to be a part of.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a great place. I mean, I like that she was bringing in new voices and new talent to jump into the world she was building.
1: Yes. And I had actually, uh, what was so funny is that uh, when she approached me, I had already like said, well, I guess comics is just not going to happen. It's just not going to be a thing for me. And uh, she actually approached me, I believe it was at Rose City Comic Con and said, just think about it. You know, I I think this would be good for you. And uh, she was the one who kind of roped me back in because I was out of the game. I was like, I I guess it's not going to happen. And um, she really kind of lit a fire under me and, gave me the motivation to, to to stick with it. And I have to thank her because, you know, if not for her, I don't think I would be uh, I would be writing about comics, but I don't think I would be writing
0: comics. Right, right. And had it been a long time since you'd done since you'd written fiction um, for comics? Yeah, it, it yeah. had
1: been a while. Yeah.
0: It's always interesting trying to change gears. Like I, I think that if when I started to do fiction for the first time as an adult ever like i I was really thankful that i'd been starting to play dungeons and dragons like i needed something to kick my head out of strictly critical mode and it's a fictional universe building i suppose i don't know Uh, did you have anything that you were doing to sort of bring yourself into storytelling rather than just story analysis mode i think because
1: when I would analyze stories or when I anal- or I would analyze characters, I was so focused on relationships and on position in society that it was easy to work my way into fiction because I was already constant I was already focused on relationships. I was already focused on how these characters would interact because of their positions, not only with each other, but within the society. That well, not our society, but within the society that they exist in.
0: Totally, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, uh, having read the uh, the story that you have in the new Batman Secret uh, Secret Files issue, that's that's very much comes to light in uh, Batman's interactions with the two reoccurring characters from his cast in it.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy that I got to bring back Lucius, who is just uh, a favorite of mine. And um, hopefully we get to uh, to chop it up about Bane a a little bit later, because I do love him, too.
0: I do. Oh, God, I know I'm one of my favorite villains. Um, And just one of those characters that people just do amazing things with or they really don't get it. (laughs) and It feels like it's one or the other. That, that is true, but I think he
1: has, well, I, I don't want to say he has so much potential because now that potential is being realized, so we're actually seeing it now, but um, for a long time I feel like people did not really dig into uh, the background of Bane or the, uh, I guess, fictional culture. I, it's so funny because everyone chooses a different country that they mm-hmm. um, believe the fictional country to be. And for me, it was um, the Dominican Republic. That's the one I chose.
0: Yes. Oh, my God. That was actually, <laughs> I had three options, and then I switched to just B2. And the third one I cut off was DR. So please continue.
1: <laughs> it's so funny. Well, for me, it, it's just a, a little bit of a bias because that was... Um, I came from a town that was like 70, 80% Latino. And the two major cultures that were there were uh, Puerto Rican and from the Dominican Republic. So that's like the culture that I was the most familiar with. So that would, you know, that is always Caribbean Latino cultures are always the ones I gravitate towards the most because of um, where I was raised and also my like early formative friendships when I was a a young girl and also coming Mm. like if you go back a couple of generations, my family is we're not uh, Latino, but we are from the Caribbean. So it's kind of like, you know, neighboring.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, definitely feel like there's a real United Fruit Company undercurrent to some of the Santa Prisca like canon takes that I've seen in the comics. What's weird for me with Bane and,
1: and just looking at it um, from both the comic and also from the cartoon is that there's um, it's almost like he's piecemeal and they select different portions from different cultures. And mm-hmm. um, I think it would be best. No, I don't want to say it would be best. I i would like it the most if they would pick one and just mm-hmm. run with that. But I think um, the reason why you have that piecemeal is because. People select different things that they like from different cultures and, and sort of try to mix it into one for Bane. But I, I, it, it comes off across a little weird for me because I'm just like, well, he has, uh, you know, the lucha mask. But then yeah. he also comes from this island that is very, you know, reminiscent of DR. It's just it, it's weird for me. And I, I, I kind of wish they would just pick one and just, you know, run with it.
0: Well, that's definitely one of the things with D.C. in the sense that D.C. is this world that most of the places are fictional. Like it took a long time for D.C. to, real- to decide that New York also existed in addition to Gotham and, metropolitan- yes. and Metropolis and stuff. So it's, it's just one of those core world building differences that it's easy to forget. And then you remember it and you're like, oh, that it's huge. It's a huge difference between D.C. and Marvel.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of wonder how they make that work because like I was looking at a, um, a map uh, recently and so Gotham would be where Jersey City is now mm-hmm. and I'm just like you can't have something as big as Gotham that's right next to something as big as New York City. It, it just does not work that way. So you can't just like knock Jersey City out and put Gotham there. Maybe if Gotham was a little bit smaller, I think it would work. But Gotham is, mm. you know, clearly just as big and, and, you know, and just as, it's just as big as New York. So it, it, it's kind of strange to see. I, I, I kind of prefer the, um, the Grand Theft Auto version where they knock out the, uh, the real American cities and just place them, you know their cities within that area. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And did you did you come up primarily as a DC fan or?
1: No, it was funny because uh, I was totally image. Uh, I jumped in as a kid in the um, in the nineties with mm-hmm. Wildstorm, and uh, from Wildstorm I bounced on over to Marvel because I was like, "Oh, Storm looks interesting." And I uh, started to <laughs> started to pick up you know the X books. Um, but it wasn't into, I didn't really get into DC until the cartoons. Mm-hmm. And then once Batman the animated series hit, then it was like, okay this is DC for me, I I love this. Um, But it took a while, it was very roundabout. And it's funny because most people start with Marvel or DC and I Mm -hmm. started with neither. Although technically, I guess I could say I did start with Marvel. Um, My cousins used to collect Marvel and um, I was over my grandmother's house as a very young kid and that was when I was only reading Archie's. And um, there was this issue where the X-Men went to hell. And that was, I was like, oh, I'm done with comics. This is not, nope. (laughs) (laughs) that scared me so bad. It put me off like superheroes for the longest time. And I went right back to Archie. So technically my first was the X-Men, but um, I really jumped back in with, uh, with Wildstorm.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Was it like, what was it about Wildstorm that grabbed you? Uh, Jim Lee's art. And
1: also uh, the characters, Voodoo and Grifter. I was just like, this is just, I love it. And uh, I, I just love that, um, Right then, it was like the, you know, the mid-90s. So everything was just very, very uh, flashy and very colorful. And I just, they had the best production quality at at the time um, mm-hmm. compared to all other companies. And I think that's what just pulled me right in. One, the art, but, you know, all companies had wonderful art at that time. Um, but it was really Wildstorm's production quality that was like above and beyond
0: everyone else. I know I haven't read much... Well, I never read any Wildcats basically, but Brett, who runs graphic policy, was always there telling me how I should have read Wildcats because it would had tons of like anti corporate, um, political. Oh yes. Themes.
1: Not only that, um, it's so funny. Uh, well, I, I have to go back and and reread those issues as you know a, a big old grown up now that's very interested in society because, um, when Alan Moore did his run. Uh, he really kind of did a compare and contrast of the alien races in uh, Wildcats to the different races and cultures we have here in the United States, which was something that was very interesting. Um, and basically, you had um, two major warring factions: you had the Damonites and the Caribbean. And um, obviously, at one point, the Damonites were the ones who were evil, they were the monsters. and um, Alan Moore basically flipped it to uh, the Caribbean were an invading, you know, race and they had enslaved the Damonites. And these this, these characters that we believed were monsters the entire time were actually just fighting against slavery, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of blew my mind as a kid, you know, reading that and just like, oh, this what I had believed I was completely wrong about. So there were there was a lot of. Um, social issues that uh uh, took place you know obviously for younger kids younger kids or for teenagers you know um so it's a more simplistic view but the the seeds were there within uh wildcats the same way they were there within x-men as well
0: yeah yeah and it's interesting like talking about the question of like what politics do people pick up on when they're reading something because having read your story uh you know in the new issue of batman secret files I'm like, oh, okay. This is really political and topical and like happening right now. I don't know to what extent we can or should talk about the specifics of the story, but I think I could certainly ask, you know, more broadly. Like you, you, you know, your story is very political in terms of the uh, questions that it poses about technology and society and uh, and 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 crime as a concept. Um, when you're creating political work that you want to have interpreted with a particular angle like how how does it feel sort of putting it out there and then sort of having to wait and see what the audience takes from it and wait to hear their interpretations and like if they get it right or if they don't get it right or if they maybe take a message from it that isn't what you're looking for
1: oh my goodness you have me terrified now um the funny thing was when i wrote the story i did not think about that. I, I didn't think about uh, being political. what I thought about was how much I felt like I was one of the people from the hill and mm. how the hill is not represented anymore and or it has not been represented for a very long time uh, within the DC universe and within the books, I think the last time was uh, Batman the Hill. Uh, with mm-hmm. priest and uh, Sean Martinborough was uh, I think that was the the last time anyone had really focused um, on those characters and what they wow. are doing when Joker is you know blowing up banks <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. amusement parks so uh, my first focus was I want to tell a story about the people that remind me of the people from home and mm. that was more that was more the focus than um, Talking about politics, it was representing um, a group that I felt was missing um, or hadn't been talked about for a while in the in the Batman or in the the DC universe.
0: That's really great, though, because, you know, the, the idea of that Batman would have the same relationship with people from every slice of life is ridiculous. Um, so having a take on him that's really rooted in a particular community, uh, especially one that's like feeling like Batman is really left to them and hasn't really done shit for them is is really important.
1: And not
0: only uh, Batman, but
1: also Gordon and uh, the Gotham Police Department, mm-hmm. uh, they are so focused on metahumans and so focused on the uh, the inmates of Arkham that a lot of people fall through the cracks. In that universe, and uh, that's something that I wanted uh, to discuss, um, which is something that you you don't see um, in our universe because uh, you see almost like an obsessive amount of over policing. Um, yeah. So it's really um, a contrast to what goes on for us to what goes on in you know in Gotham.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question though, right? So like, if we're talking about the problem of over policing uh, in terms of the fact that, for example, the overwhelming, even even in New York today with, you know, with Mayor de Blasio, the overwhelming majority of people who are arrested for just basic minor drug possession are still people of color, even though most of the people who have drugs are white people. Um, you know, like we're talking about, we're talking about that problem of over-policing, but then there's, but then in, in comics, you look at a lot of places because uh, the heroes are generally speaking put into the same category as vigilantes as people who are supposed to be intervening in stopping some sort of concept of crime it's like it's it's challenging for us you know as people who don't want to romanticize the policing as a activity that is somehow always going to help people um
1: yeah that's it's it's true and it's something that I struggle with, um, I, not to jump from uh, to DC to other universes, but um, the fact that uh, for Luke Cage, uh, I don't know mm. if you've seen the, uh, the Netflix um, TV series, but the fact that he mm-hmm. was made a cop is something that really deeply bothered me. Uh, and I, I was surprised to what extent it bothered me, but I did not. Um, like the fact that he was originally a cop, I think it was very important that they leave Luke as someone who is a man of the street. Mm-hmm. Um, a man who was does not trust cops because they did not treat him fairly. Yeah. Um, and when you make him a cop, I think you definitely lose that. And not only and it's it's important to have that because I think it's important for children who, are from the same area as Luke to be able to see that they can be heroes as well mm-hmm. um, and see that there is someone who really represents represents them, and a lot of them may feel that the police department does not
0: yeah, yeah i mean i i i I've not seen season two. I very much enjoyed season one, uh, but definitely one of the consistent critiques that you know I was hearing from. A lot of my friends who are who are critics in black activist spaces was like, this is like the most establishmentarian Luke Cage (laughs) we could have possibly come out with. It Um, was
1: it it was really strange to see that um, a Luke who is so conservative and. um, I guess older than his years, because uh, Mm. Coulter is what, 39, 40, Um, and he his Luke really carry Luke really carries himself as someone who is in his uh, late forties, maybe very early fifties. So mm-hmm. it, it, he, he comes like he comes across like he comes from an older generation than what Luke really should be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did, so in second season, like, did you, did you bother keeping up on it or?
1: I am like 75% of the way through the the second season and I, I I enjoy I enjoy the show but it's just it's just something that nags at me and um, I I seem to find myself rooting for the villains or drawn to the villains uh, more mm-hmm. than the hero which is weird I mean I, like I adored Cottonmouth and I yes. understood kind of where he was coming from um, he was Harlem uh, way more. Then Luke Cage was Harlem. And uh, although I don't agree with, you know, his methods and I definitely don't agree with the violence and I definitely don't agree with um, the dealing of drugs and of guns. But he was definitely more Harlem and more of the street than Luke Cage, who is a former cop from Savannah, you know,
0: would be. Well, it's complicated because, like, for me, my favorite character is Mariah Dillard. And in real life, like, my literal job that I have been paid to do in multiple races is, like, get rid of corrupt Democratic elected officials during the Democratic primary. So, like, in real life... It's like, I would be working for whatever reform candidate was fighting against her. Like, that would be my actual job that people would pay me to do. So on the show, I was like, oh, they did such a good job with her. That seems, seems about right. Seems about right. <laughs> like, you know, um, they just did such a great job with the character. And so I loved it, even though, like, yeah, that's no, that's she's like my nemesis. But I totally get it because she's a real person. She's not, you know, like with, with real humanity, it's not like some unfathomable Like, where is this coming from? Like, you see completely where this is coming from and the desperation that creates the political machines that exist. Oh, and definitely there
1: are Mariah Dillard's out there. Um, Oh, yeah. So this is not it's not something that like they have demonized, uh, like uh, some poor, unfortunate soul. No, there are people, uh, obviously not to the extent I hope, (laughs) because I don't know for sure. Hopefully not to the extent of a Mariah Dillard. But the the seeds are there, definitely. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I just, I, I haven't been, I haven't determined if I'm going to go in and put in the time to watch season two yet. So I'm, I'm always interested in hearing what, what, what other critics I like have to say about it. Um, what about, did you watch, have you watched the new Daredevil season much? No, I just okay.
1: started. I just started, yeah. I love I love Daredevil. So obviously I'm going to. So I've, I've just seen uh, episode one and then I'm going to launch into it. I've seen all of them. Uh, I have not seen Jessica Jones season two yet.
0: Don't Um, bother. Just don't bother.
1: Oh, wow. I had issues with season one, um, Mm -hmm. but it was enjoyable. Uh, But then a lot of I heard mixed reviews about season two. There were some people who were very upset with season two. So
0: I I wish I could have had the time back that I I basically (laughs) watched all of season two so that I could be prepared to cover it on the podcast. And then by the time I was done with it, I was so completely embroiled in my, like, political work and stuff. It was like, why am I going to spend time talking about why Jessica Jones season two is that massively disappointing and doesn't address any of the racial problems that were, <laughs> that were like, the, that were problems in season one that oh, was no. like, well, maybe they'll fix it in season two. They didn't. So in season two, you don't even have the fact that it's a good show to like put back against the, you know, season one, it's like, it has racial, it has racism problems. It's a good show. I don't know. That's complicated season two. It's like, it's not even a good show and it hasn't fixed its racism problem. So I just. Wow. Along. I will
1: definitely be skipping it. But the, the funny thing about season one is, um, these problems exist, but then, um, Also, Jessica would probably, like, the way she operated, it Mm -hmm. made sense. It made sense for someone who is coming from her specific, who has her specific privileges. Um, The way she behaved towards men of color and towards women of color, it kind of, it made sense. So Mm -hmm. even though I I was disturbed by it and, you know, there there were things that annoyed me, I was just like, I could see how this character would make these decisions, you know, towards Malcolm, towards other, towards Luke. Um, so yeah. it, it made sense according to the character. And obviously, you know, these characters aren't perf- perfect, they're going to have biases, they're going to, you know, do the wrong thing, even heroes do the wrong thing at, at, at certain times. So it was something that I, I had pointed out uh, with uh, a column that I wrote, but It wasn't something where I was going to write off the show because of it. But now everyone talking about how bad season two is now, I'm just like, well, I guess I will write off
0: the show. I mean, there's a really interesting, there's a, there's a, there's an Asian American character who is like really cool for like about an episode and then they just treat him in a way that, and there's a difference between the show treating somebody in a way that's dehumanizing and the, and Jessica treating somebody in a way that's dehumanizing like Jessica's a bad person, so you know, she'll treat some people in a way that's dehumanizing. But I felt like the way the show treated him was dehumanizing too, so I was like, done with you. But um, um but yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you what you have to say about, you know, Daredevil after you're done with that. I I I will probably get deeper into it after the election. I, I've watched the first two episodes, <laughs> but um you know, I I imagine we'll probably weigh in on that at some point in time. Yeah, that I mean, that is my yeah.
1: favorite, so I'm definitely going to just launch into that as soon as I have time.
0: Well, I'll take it from you. Like, you know, I was very critical of Daredevil season two. What is it that has you really excited to watch Daredevil season three? Uh,
1: The funny thing is that uh, I am like the complete opposite. I loved, I loved half of Daredevil season two. Um, I really, it's funny because um, when you are a person of color, who is involved with comics, and you have an interest in uh, race and ethnicity and sociology? People just assume that you are only focused on your particular ethnicity, ethnicity mm-hmm. so or race. So, like, I'm only focused on blackness. But the interesting thing about um, season two of Daredevil is really the compare and contrast between um, Daredevil and his Irish Catholic background, and Punisher and I, what I definitely believe is an Italian-American Catholic background yep. and just how they um, interact and clash and move with each other. And um, that's the one thing that the Marvel Netflix shows got perfectly mm-hmm. right. I, I think they did drop the ball a little bit when it came to exploring, you know, New York blackness, uh, as opposed to Luke, who's very much concentrated in his southerness and uh, almost kind of a conservative, um, kind of Bible based slant. Um, But when it comes to, you know, white Catholic European, oh my God, Daredevil season two just nailed it. Um, And it was as someone who's a former, you know, born in New York. went to school you know in brooklyn it was something that was really interesting to see and i wish they had explored that with um with asian-american characters and with Mm. latino characters and with african-american characters but they kind of dropped the ball a little bit um but it's not too late i mean listen you know they could go back in and, and do that. Uh, Luke Cage has unfortunately been canceled, but hey, Heroes yeah. for Hire, or I would very be very, very, very happy with uh, a White Tiger series or a Shang-Chi series, let me tell you.
0: Oh, yeah, Daughters of the Dragon better be happening. I just keep expecting that to be the next piece of news we hear. We've finally been freed of the curse of Iron Fist, White Iron Fist existence. I, I, I would love for that to happen, but I... I'm
1: not expecting it simply because of Disney's new streaming service that's sure going to. I think we might be robbed of that, which makes me very sad.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're probably probably right. I mean, one of the things I really appreciate with you as a critic is that you're somebody who isn't just talking about the material and analyzing it, but you're also looking at it in context of the industry. I feel like a lot of critics only wear one of those two hats, and wearing them both together really offers a lot more richness um so i know that one of the things that uh i've always appreciated with your comics criticism and analysis has been looking at like the systems that the industry has set up that undermined its own success with with great regularity um and so it's interesting to see uh you know you're talking also about that the platform issue where netflix marvel netflix is kind of because Marvel's starting its own streaming, Marvel Netflix has less of a reason to want to keep creating good content for a platform it doesn't own.
1: Right, and the impact that it has um, on society and on us, because it it makes me a little sad because even though I adored Black Panther, um, when you really think about it, you are kind of losing the African-American voice. You still have black voices, you still have black representation, but that representation is from a mythical country uh, for the most part. So losing Luke Cage, losing Misty Knight, you know, I mean, it would be great if they brought that to the streaming service, but if they don't, then that's a certain, um, those are cultures and voices that are then kind of lost when it comes to representation. And even beyond black people, I mean, even, you know, you have that, you know, those concentrated new york you know european asian american there are cultures that are kind of not represented in the larger mcu that are represented in the netflix universe
0: that i i would be really sad to see lost that is very true and i appreciate like the attempts at sense of place that the series i mean some of them do a different better job of it than others but of at least going for that um yeah well uh, with um, with your, your work for the DC uh, is is secret is is this story that you're doing is this is the is this part of an ongoing like series of Batman comics or, or how does this playing together well
1: uh, secret files is something that used to uh, it used to be a not a series but just um, a regular I guess regular occurring um book that happened in the past and i think what dc is doing now uh with secret files is really interesting in that um it's using it to break new voices or Mm -hmm. um well no just basically that it's using it to break new voices so what is wonderful about uh the secret files book is that it um it provides a platform and it uses established creators as an anchor so you have you know tom king working in the book and in like that's your anchor that's your you know your your star and then you have you know younger writers newer writers that also provide shorter stories that are basically you have the stars sharing that platform and they're sharing that platform through you know anthologies which you know i love anthologies and i love the fact that dc is going back to the you know the wealth for them and I would love for, for Marvel to do more as well because I think that is the way that is just the best way to bring new voices different voices into the industry.
0: yeah I, I love it and for that exact reason you know if you're able to have more people mentoring new writers as well, I mean Scott Snyder certainly seems like someone who's done that for a number of, of queer comics writers for example himself and and now to see like a, a, a book with the purpose of getting folks who are, you know, buying it for a particular writer's name to come in or they're buying it because they love Batman and then giving them the opportunity to hear new voices talk about a character they already care of in this sort of one-off format. It sounds like just a great way to diversify the industry. And it's funny because I believe that,
1: um, like I said before, um, when I finally got back in or finally started uh, writing creatively instead of um, just writing about the comics, but now I'm writing the comics. And I, the reason why I felt more comfortable making that change is because I, I felt like things were changing in the industry and it was easier for newer voices and for diverse voices to have a platform. And I think the reason why you had that just to be brutally honest is because the superstars you have now have a more diverse selection of peers and friends. And mm. um, and mentor a more diverse selection of people, and that is the reason why you have these new voices. Is because the superstars now, which is still you know, not as diverse. When you look at the, the superstar list, it's still you know a bunch of you know white men. White men I love. White men who I'm friends with, but yeah. you know uh, white men, straight white men, nonetheless. And but the difference between this generation that we have now superstars and the generation before it is that this generation is friends with mentors, and collaborates with a wider selection of people. And that's why the industry is changing. At least I believe that's why the industry is changing.
0: I, I believe that that's a big piece of it, too. I really do, especially good to hear you say that. I also think that part of the reason why they have those relationships is because of social media, right?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I definitely believe so with social media. It's kind of, you know, a double edged sword because they tell you, you know, watch what you say on social media. Uh, be very careful. But then this is how we are getting um, these collaborations. This is how we are getting these interactions. This is how we are broadening our horizons by talking to people who are different from us, you know. Mm hmm. Although I do want to stress that when <laughs> it's important to talk to people who are different from you, but it's important not to talk to people who are abusive. So yes. it's funny because people are just <laughs> like, you should talk to people different from you. And I'm just like, that's a great idea. But I'm not going to talk to someone who is a bully or who harasses me or who is going to uh, be bigoted at just that is just not healthy to have um, in your life yeah. or in, in or when you socialize with another person.
0: Yeah, I always say I'm not gonna talk to somebody who thinks that I'm less than human. Like, that's not gonna work out for me. And that's just gonna hurt us. So yeah. I'm gonna ask you to join me in not talking with the person who thinks that we're less than human. Um, but yeah, like, I, I really think that these relationships, like, you and I know each other because of Twitter. I mean, and we're, you know, like, I, so many of the people who I know on comics are folks who I encountered on Twitter and not just from, and I go to your Comic-Con every year. Right. And I live in New York, I can do that. But like these are relationships that we wouldn't have held or created without comics twitter being this the space that it is um so you know on the one hand it's like i really want the publishers to have a code of conduct for people to who are you know work, who are working on their characters to not engage in abusive behavior online but i don't want them to be going around telling creators not to engage on social media because that is one of the roots that we've had for introducing diverse voices into the industry,
1: right? And so it, it's it's sad to see some uh, creators closing themselves off. Um, I understand it, but it is sad to see. And, and I I'll be honest. I use block lists. I you know be, mm-hmm. just because I don't want to expose myself um, to racism or other types of bigotry online. Um, but I don't have—I no longer have a, uh, a a lock on my account, um, simply because you have to be—you um, have to get rid of that padlock in order to get work and uh, yeah. interact with people.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you, Do you are, you? are you? Do you know if you're going to be making any uh, future appearances in the Batman title or other DC books in the coming soon?
1: I, I don't know, but fingers crossed, I would love to. I would love to Everybody revisit. Everybody go buy it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I, I love the pitch you put together of for Batman Decades. Um,
1: I want that so bad. It's so funny because I get on Twitter and then I pitch for other people. Like, I don't want to write. Like, I, this is like, this Batman Decades should be a, or like DC Decades should be a superstar project. It should be like just top okay, of the tell line. Tell people
0: about what this is.
1: OK. Idea. OK, hold on. First of all, I have to, I think it's, uh, oh my goodness, what is his, I'm going to have to look it up while I'm talking on the phone with you. Francisco Francovia? Yes. Okay. His Batman 1974 image that he Mm -hmm. um, released and put online, which is just, oh my goodness, it's just amazing. And what I thought was the best thing about the DC, well, I don't want to say it's the best thing, but one thing I really like about the DC universe is that... um, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, these are icons. And you can kind of mold them and fit them into any type of story you would like to tell um, from any time period. And I know if you look at the Elseworlds, DC has been doing that um, in the past. But what I think would be great, because these characters are so beloved and because we are so obsessed as a country with nostalgia, it would be wonderful to assign each one of the each member of the one member of the trinity to a decade and tell a story that is just basically the story of that decade so obviously for batman you would have batman rooted in the 70s rooted in uh a gotham that looks very much like um 1974 New York, which according to my mother was a terrible place, um, but a very good place to have a crime story. It was the best place to have a crime story is in New York in the mid early 70s um, or to have Superman in the 1950s or to have Wonder Woman uh, 1940s World War Two. Um, to just uh, to just tell that story of that decade using one of DC's icons and you could just span that from the 1930s right on up to the 90s or even you know the 2000s if you'd like to and I would love to see a different team take on um, a different decade like uh, Phil Noto for the 60s oh my goodness a a Justice League story set in the 60s with Phil Noto would just be amazing
0: Mm -hmm. I love it I think it's a lot of fun a lot of fun well um oh golly, I had the best follow-up and it just completely fell out of my ear. Oh. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure it'll come back to me and then I'll smack myself in the head about it. But I, before I forget, Mary Worth. Oh, Talk to people about you know, what you've been doing with Mary Worth and what is this Mary Worth thing I love Mary
1: Worth, and people think that it's like I'm just making fun of the, the comic strip. I am not making fun of this comic strip. I absolutely love this comic strip, and um, the funny thing is, is that I came across it because I forget who I was talking to um, on Twitter, but um, we were wondering if the um, newspaper strips, because they're so conservative, if they acknowledge major, you know, events. In you know in our history, and I I wondered if they had mentioned nine um, eleven in like the comic, and so I was just like I wonder, and I was looking up like all the different strips to see all of the different like romance and, and drama strips to see if they had referenced it, and they did not. But I got hooked on Mary Worth because there was a breakup happening <laughs> within the story uh, during the time uh, within the comic, and I just got hooked and. Every poor, unfortunate soul who followed me on Twitter basically <laughs> was just um, held prisoner while I ran through decades of Mary Worth and basically told the story of Mary Worth to everyone who uh, followed me uh, online. Um, I love that comic. I, I do. And it's not, it's not ironic. I just genuinely love it. It's just the
0: most bizarre little perfect soap opera. I just really enjoy reading you write about Mary Worth, even though I haven't read Mary Worth since I stopped reading a paper on printed paper. <laughs> <laughs> I actually met uh, the uh, the artist for Mary Worth at
1: Baltimore Comic-Con. I was elated. Mm. She's oh,
0: just,
1: that's just cool. a lovely, lovely person. And... Um, I actually uh, found out some information on the uh, writer. Um, it's funny because I always thought that Mary Worth was like a little tongue-in-cheek, but actually the writer of the comic, uh, Karen Moy, I believe, is just as um, good and just as um, just innocent as Mary Worth is, which is just kind of heartwarming to hear um, mm-hmm. that it's just completely genuine. The, the
0: comic is completely genuine all the way through. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just like, I enjoy critical work. So when people have interesting things to say about topics that I haven't put much mental capacity into, I, I can just be super on board just to, to learn and, and hear it from their perspective, you know? Yeah. I,
1: um, it's funny because people are, are so shocked that I joke that I love this comic and it is the brightest comic strip on earth um it's funny because people always assume that you're just going to like what represents you and um that's definitely not the case i have a wide variety of things i like and i'm it's funny that i never had an issue with the lack of representation in maryworth mainly because it's a very close-knit community being written about and it's Mm -hmm. basically a very wealthy area of southern california so i'm it's not like I'm expecting to have a, a ton of black people in the comic strip but I think there's been like three in like four
0: decades. I can't <laughs> so fathom how that is. Yeah, that's not I that's just that's statistically impossible. I mean it's crazy.
1: It, it's like, it, it's so funny. And then like, I'll be like POC alert when I actually like see one I'll make the announcement that, oh my goodness. Although it's funny because it has changed um, dramatically with the new creative team that took over in 2016. So that is, um, it's really changed quite a bit. Um, it's way more diverse uh, than it has been in the
0: decades prior. Do you think that fans of Cape Books should be, Revisit Mary Worth, and do you think we'd be into it if we like superhero soap operas like the X Men? If you like soaps, you will. I think Mary Worth is probably a bit too innocent
1: for those mm. who are um, who love uh, the drama of X Men or, or the DC universe. It's it's a very um, it's a very innocent comic, um, but it's very charming and very heartwarming. Um, but if you like the old school soaps. I think Mary Worth is something that you would like. You you'll miss gotcha. the, the. There's no scandal in Mary Worth, so it's missing what? the scandal, okay. but
0: the soap is definitely there. I remembered the question I was going to ask you. Okay. Which was DC's black label comics. Um, it, you know, I had meant to cover it on the show. We haven't had a chance to it yet. It seems like you have some thoughts about it as a concept, and I'd love to hear them. Uh, you know, it's.
1: Let's hope this does not get me in trouble. But um, I really love the idea of black label, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's something that we should have. We should have we should have the ability to explore adult. And I don't mean adult as in you know pornographic, but we have we should have the ability to explore adult themes with these characters in a way that's separate from the main universe that kids and teenagers enjoy. Yeah. Um, I, I like the idea of having something that's completely carved off away from the the main universe. Just, you know, very, um, your coffee table book that, um, adults can discuss. And I, I feel bad that, um, Black Label got such a bad rap, um, because of what occurred in Batman Damned, I believe is the, um, yep. the comic. And yep. it, it became so focused on the nudity, um, instead of the story but um, that's something that I think the creative team can't you you don't have control over how the media or how the audience is going to respond to your story so you just you just gotta run with it and unfortunately it became all about naked Batman and um, instead of the the story itself and that Mm -hmm. became the hook for a black label it became oh this is gonna be these salacious you're gonna be able to see Batman nude instead of it's about adult themes now it's about sexual themes and there's a definite difference between adult and sexual that I think got lost in all of the controversy with um ding ding ding
0: yeah thank you I'm like yes this is very much so I I um I really was frustrated at how the how how fans and fan media were responding to it I thought it was really infantile I um I went I Like, I felt like the coverage was so bad that I went and I read the issue when I hadn't even planned to just because I felt like I needed to be able to offer an opinion (laughs) on this matter. But I was like, okay, we have casual nudity here that is used as a symbolism of Batman's physical vulnerability and this moment, like his emotional vulnerability. So like there's it makes sense that he's naked. They're doing something with it. There's women in sexualized naked situations constantly in comics for like no reason at all this wasn't even sexualized and i was like this makes sense to me and you know i i think that we i think that fans deserve as much i don't know what the male equivalent of tna is but like i don't know dnc as <laughs> female bodies have tna but this wasn't even that this wasn't even that and so the the uh the assumption that all nudity is purient um was just really miss' just really missing the point, my point was like we deserve purient and non purient and this wasn 't even Purient and trading it like it was purient is really infantile because that 's just not what it was yeah that that's basically it exactly,
1: and what makes me so sad is I think that brought the hammer down on black <laughs> label i don 't know you know i don't know how it's going to be going forward, but i it, it seemed like d c kind of pulled back once they saw the response. Um, So uh, we may not Mm -hmm. be getting the investment in the label that we would have gotten before if it had not been such a a joking kind of response from
0: the media and from from audiences. I just think people are really uncomfortable with male nudity because they never have to think about it. And like female nudity is just taken as the basic assumption for art.
1: Yeah, Mm. and it's it's kind of... uh, it's frustrating, and I'm not certain how you go about combating that, I guess, with male nudity. Um, just, just keep going at it until people mm-hmm. get used to it the same way they're used to seeing naked women in comics constantly. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like to the point where it's just like, oh my goodness, again. Um, maybe that's what it takes for people to finally respond in the same way.
0: And, you know, Bitch Planet was such a great job of having sexualized female nudity and unsexualized female nudity and being like, look, you can have both of these things and having people be super sexed up in contexts where it's rapey is not cool, but you can have people in sexualized nudity when they're having sex in ways that are, you know, plot that that you have a different emotional response to. Like, you know, we have comics that have illustrated that distinction before, so...
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Val did an amazing job with what is a really difficult situation, especially probably coming from someone who just has the male gaze as the, a default, being a man. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that he was able to make that division um, and make that distinction is just, he's just did an amazing job in Bitch Planet. He really has.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great comic. Um, and I know that you have one more thing coming out soon. You've you're, been recently announced as a writer for...
1: Humanoids. Uh, yes, I'm going to be the writer for the book Omni uh, from Humanoids. Unfortunately, uh, there's a, a gag going in place, so I cannot um, discuss that more, but I am very, very happy uh, to be with this company. It's just a wonderful company and I'm, I'm so happy to start my uh, my first ongoing series
0: yeah that is really exciting looking for the ongoing can people put in an order for that at their stores yet or is that not uh, time it's not time it's still a little
1: early but mm-hmm. I, I will definitely love to come back and talk about it once i can cool
0: yeah thank you that was one of the panels i was at a new york comic-con where i learned a lot of stuff that i did not know previously so hey <laughs> <laughs> um Well, we're coming up on in an hour in just a little bit. Uh, I wanted to see from you, you know, if our, for our listeners, where's the best place for us to keep abreast of your critical work online. Um, The best place would be my website, which is
1: just my name, CheryllynnEaton.com. And uh, they just have, there's links to everything else there. And um, you could subscribe to the newsletter where you get information on what's coming out next. And there's even a list of uh, my work and you can get some freebies as well. Some uh, free snippets of prose and poems and and stuff like that.
0: Oh, cool. I'll be getting on your email list for sure. And then you're also on Twitter and active there as well, which as your account is a
1: Everything, it's so simple. Everything is my name. So on Twitter, my name, Instagram, my name, Tumblr. Yes, I'm even on Tumblr. I'm one of the last people that is still on. I love Tumblr. I, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's my name. It's funny uh, because so many people say that like, oh, um and well, people say it about Twitter too, but it's just like, oh, Tumblr is so depressing and it's a whole bunch of infighting and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, it's really how well you curate your social media. So I see pictures of puppies and uh, nice, you know, inspirational messages when I log into Tumblr. I don't see any fighting at all. So it really depends Mm -hmm. on who you follow.
0: I mean, for me, like Tumblr is the site where I've, I'm not as active there as I used to be because partially because I'm on Twitter for my job constantly. Right. Ilana underscore Brooklyn. Um, but uh, but what, Tumblr was a place where I would see the most people who were women or non-binary uh, or a gender, like people who were not cis men basically, um, talking about comics and mm. geek culture. Like Tumblr is just a, this amazing big space where we get to geek out and there's like no cis men. That's magical I like you know, that. You know what? Now that
1: I'm thinking about it, maybe the negative reaction to Tumblr is just Tumblr being the digital version of a pumpkin spice latte, where the world <laughs> sees that women, you know, people who are not straight white men are into it, and it becomes a bad thing, even though it's it's not a bad thing. I I love pumpkin spice lattes, and I love Tumblr.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there there's definitely Tumblr holes you can fall down where there's teenagers. And you want to pull your hair out, but like, let the teenagers be teenagers. We don't have to get into their purity debates, like that. Let them have their space. Right. We could hang out with other adults and um, have interesting conversations about geek stuff, and not have to deal with like straight men who are cisgender for a little while. It's cool. So. <laughs> <that's> <laughs> Although my I pitch love for them Tumblr. too, but
1: it, it's good stuff yeah. for everyone to have. A platform a space. and for everyone yeah. to have a space and a voice.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like we don't have to always have. We could be like more dominant voices in certain spaces for a change. And... Right. Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm really excited to read the rest of the issue. Uh, I really enjoyed the comic. The artist who did the work, who, who you partnered with on it, were really good.
1: Oh, let me give shout outs um, to everyone. Pencils Elena Casagrande. Colors, Jordi Belair. Oh, yeah. Editing, Jamie Ritz and Brittany Holzer. I had the most amazing... I, I can't believe how lucky I am every single time. Um, I was unbelievably lucky lucky with Bitch Planet Triple Feature. And this time, I was unbelievably lucky as well. And I'm just so scared of like the one time where I'm not going to have a good team. But so far, I am just batting a 1,000. I am just getting the most amazing people to create stories with, and I'm just so lucky.
0: Oh, actually, I should ask, what was the creative process like for developing the look for the young Black woman who you created for the story? Um, it was just basically...
1: Um, the only thing I the only thing that I was just like, I would love to have this hairdo, but if you think that something else would be, you know, better, then go for it. But um, luckily, Elena was like, I'm going to go for it, and you know, I'm going to go for with the one that uh, you, you chose. But um, basically, it was just giving elena the space to just run with it the the only thing that um I did sneak in, and I can talk about this even though it's it's a little bit of a secret, is um, in my old neighborhood, there used to be a store called 99 Cent Dreams. And I was like, you guys have to put this store in the comic. And so they actually listened to me and amazingly put this, the store in the comic. So that was just like a beautiful thing um, to get that kind of like feel of like home in, in the work.
0: Cool, cool. I, I, uh, I definitely am always like, you know when you, when you're when you're doing a quick turn on a story it's always interesting to hear like how writers and artists are working together to f- develop character looks who like don't exist previously and you know black women with black hair and stuff like that is important
1: oh elena was an absolute dream to work with and it's funny because i thought we would have like issues because of like the language gap. But obviously, you know, she's she's not an American. She knows multiple languages. So she was like, I'm, I'm good. Don't worry about <laughs> it. So um, awesome. we, we didn't have that that trouble at all. So it was yeah, it
0: looks great. Yeah.
1: And what's easy is that Gotham already sort of has a look that you, you know what Gotham looks like um, mm. and it's very much reminiscent of New York. So she already had like a, a game plan and I already had a game plan to, to work with, which is really great. That's the good thing about working within the DC universe is that it's a world that's already built. You just have to provide your own unique angle to it.
0: And you definitely have done that with the story. I'm thank really you. excited about it. I, I was very pleased and I'm excited to read what you do next. All right, so, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And for our listeners, uh, Graphic Policy Radio is brought to you by graphicpolicy.com, your site for comics and geek news and reviews uh we are going to have the finally the finale episode of venture brothers podcast um hopefully to have it be up next week things are a little bit crazy on account of the fact that there's an election you may have heard about it and it's incredibly important um so uh i'm not exactly sure when that final venture brothers podcast episode will be possibly next week but if it's not you know why It's because I have to go and talk to every voter in the district and make sure that they turn out. Um, And uh, what else we have coming up in the fall? We're going to have some other great comics writers guests as well. And urging you guys to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Give us a review. That really does matter. And you can find me online at elana underscore Brooklyn on Twitter or at graphicpolicy.com. Thanks again. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.